This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Onelin Zinzi, Musibudi Makura and Tabisoliwuku. Your top stories on Africa Rise and Shine This Hour. Amnesty International releases satellite images of the towns of Baga and Doron Baga, showing the devastation caused by Boko Haram. A meeting between SEDEC Health Ministers and the private sector recommends the creation of a regional health trust to tackle malaria, TB and HIV and AIDS. First, the news with Onel Ntinti. The Nigerian army has killed 42 fighters from the radical Islamist group Boko Haram when repelling its attempt to take over the northeastern town of Abu. The Boko Haram members who were killed on Tuesday included 15 Chadians. Coordinator of the National Information Center says five insurgents were also captured while fleeing the town. President Goodluck Jonathan meanwhile visited Maiduguru, which has often been targeted by Boko Haram, telling soldiers the government had not shied away from its responsibility of protecting Nigerians. Jonathan's visit was seen by analysts as a bid for votes in next month's general elections. Meanwhile, the international community has been urged to redouble its effort against extremists and terrorism. President of the UN General Assembly, Sam Kutesa, described attacks by such groups as the Islamist State of Iraq and Syria, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram as heinous and brutal. He says the attacks have put in sharp focus on the rising threats of terrorism and extremism. There is no justification for such attacks and we must continue to condemn them. Terrorism in all its forms and manifestations is criminal and unjustifiable, regardless of its motivation, whoever, whenever, and by whomsoever committed. The international community must redouble its efforts to combat extremism and terrorism in all forms of manifestation. We also need to promote peaceful dialogue and mutual understanding among peoples to avoid extremism and polarization. The 12-day strike by more than 300,000 Kenyan teachers has come to an end after the government and the teachers' union representatives appeared before Kenya's industrial court where a judge requested them to officially file their dispute next week. The dispute has prevented first-term reopening of public primary and secondary schools in the country. Chairperson of the Kenya National Union of Teachers, Wilson Soshan. As teachers, we are law-abiding citizens of this country. And we want to thank the court because they have not declared us our strike illegal. For that purpose, the National Executive Council and the National Advisory Council is hereby directed to come to Nairobi on Friday for a meeting at a place, venue, that will be communicated to them so that they can own and ratify the process. So all the teachers will resume duties Monday, 8 o'clock. 
SADC Health Ministers are holding their first meeting with the private sector in an effort to scale up the fight against HIV-AIDS, TB and malaria. The conference is underway in the resort town of Victoria Falls. It is expected to endorse a health trust composed of government, the private sector and civil society. The trust will coordinate a response to funding and skill shortages that have hampered the fight against the diseases. SADC has set 2030 as the deadline to eliminate the diseases, which are known as the triple threat. Zimbabwe's health minister David Parirenyatwa is hosting the meeting. And they are seeing also the value of it because you see the businesses and the private sector in our own countries is what you should be relying upon rather than donors from outside the region. And finally, 13 crew of a Burundian vessel are feared to have died on a return trip from Tanzania. Maritime authorities say the boat belonging to Burundi's Tanganyika Transport Company has gone missing on Lake Tanganyika. This is after leaving Kasanga Port in Tanzania on Tuesday. The boat was returning from Zambia and made a stopover in Tanzania. It was not carrying passengers. Only one of the 14 crew on board was rescued. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Muslim clerics, traditional rulers and dignitaries from Cameroon's northern border areas with Nigeria have assembled in Yawunde to be trained in communication technologies and the internet in order to share information with the military as part of strategies to combat the Nigerian terrorist group Boko Haram. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga reports from Yawunde. Most of the 100 Muslim clerics and traditional rulers assembled here at the Yaoundé African Institute of Computer Studies are touching a keyboard for the first time. Laminu Nana, an imam from Fotokol, along the border with Nigeria's Bono State, says he does not know how to read and write, which makes this training that much harder. <laughs> Concernant mon point de vue, je vois que ça, le, le parent devrait sensibiliser leurs enfants. I think they should have invited our children because this thing is difficult for us, he says. Nothing, he finds this course very complicated. Modibo Alidu from the Ashigasha Mosque, which straddles the Nigeria-Cameroon border, says he's eager to learn more after the two of intensive classes. He says he's learned how to switch his computer on and lock it off, but he is interested in sending messages and pictures. He's calling on all imams and Muslim leaders to study how to make use of the internet so as to be connected. Trainer Sheikh Umaru Malam says Muslim leaders in general need to get up to speed with IT and its impact on daily life in their communities. But he notes this specific course is designed to teach those in areas which have been targets of attacks and kidnappings by the Nigerian militant group Boko Haram. 
He says being able to share critical information quickly is essential to help authorities identify and locate terrorist suspects. This plan is, is going to enable imams and Muslim dignitaries to be able to work, to communicate with others. They are going to be not only in communication with those who are around them, but they are going to communicate and to cooperate with the world to spread peace, harmony between mankind. Dr. Musa Umaru, president of the Cameroon Council of Imams and Muslim Dignitaries, says his group helped design the digital training for computers and mobile phones and it has been used by the government as a tool in the fight against Boko Haram attacks in the north. Nous sortons de la troisième conférence des imams du Cameroun. Les imams sont déclarés. He says establishing peace does not involve only the use of weapons, and that is why during their third conference of imams and Muslim dignitaries, they decided to collaborate with the government in fighting against Boko Haram. He says no one can be effective in today's world without some mastery of information technologies. Mongoy Sessor, a senior official in Cameroon's Ministry of Territorial Administration, says after the training, these leaders will be able to collect pictures of all newcomers to their communities and forward them electronically to their military as part of enhanced surveillance of the border. I have told them that we do not have weapons, but we have a duty to inform the military and Cameroon officials of any suspected visitors in our localities, he says. These first 100 Muslim leaders will be given equipment to take back with them and can now use since Cameroon inaugurated an optical fiber internet network in the north last year. Boko Haram, which means Western education is a sin, has been recruiting young people and attacking schools, mosques and churches in northern Cameroon, which it has been using in its five-year bloody campaign to establish a caliphate in northern Nigeria. It has targeted and kidnapped dozens of clergy and Muslim religious leaders who criticize the group. The clerics will use equipment for collecting data and keeping an inventory of young people suspected to have been recruited by Boko Haram. Moki, Edwin Kinzika, Yawundi. Meanwhile, international human rights group Amnesty International has released satellite images of the towns of Baga and Doron Baga in northeastern Nigeria, showing what the organization calls indisputable and shocking evidence of last week's attacks by Boko Haram. Amnesty International says 3,700 structures were damaged or destroyed. Nigeria's military this week said that 150 people died, dismissing as sensational claims that 2,000 may have lost their lives. Kesia Omar is Amnesty International Nigeria campaigner. So the uh, satellite images that we've gathered uh, show the two towns, Baga and Doran Baga, and these are only two of the towns that were attacked by Boko Haram. The images were taken on the 2nd of January before the attack took place and the 7th of January. And the images from the 7th of January show the devastating effect and the destruction of homes. Over 3,700 structures, with the majority of those being in Doran Baga, were either damaged or destroyed. And it you know, corroborates witness testimonies of people who said Boko Haram 
had attacked, destructed property and killed civilians. You've mentioned that these are satellite images, but how were they obtained, if you can explain that to us briefly? Yes, so the satellite images were commissioned. So there's this company called Digital Globe, but the satellite runs over the location quite regularly. And what we tried to do is commission images from before the attack took place and after to see what the change was. And what we clearly see is damage to properties. The plantations have been destroyed. And also on the 2nd of January, you'll see images of wooden fishing boats but on the 7th of January those are no longer there and this confirms testimonies that we've received of people saying they fled the area to either Maiduguri or left the country to Chad to seek refuge. You mentioned the destruction to buildings. Do we know what sort of buildings these are? Are they people's homes? So from the testimonies we've gathered, we've spoken to eyewitnesses, human rights defenders and local government officials. The reports we've received is that Boko Haram attacked homes, they attacked schools and they attacked clinics. So all of these being civilian properties. And this is just another example of the attacks that have been taking place. We've been documenting this for some time. And Boko Haram, the assaults they're carrying out on civilians and these properties do constitute crime crimes against humanity and war crimes, which are the serious crimes in international law. We're calling you know, for Boko Haram to cease these attacks and stop committing such crimes, but also for the government to take all positive steps that it can to restore security and protect civilians. Any suggestions on those positive steps? Oh yes. So I mean, we've we've been documenting the different sides of the conflict. So not only what Boko Haram is committing, but also military forces. And our recommendations to the government has been to carry out impartial and independent investigations and to ensure that people that are responsible are brought to justice. So I mean, in this case, it would be bringing the Boko Haram militants who are responsible for such attacks to justice and doing as much as they can, doing that legally to protect the civilians. The Nigerian government is dismissing claims that about 2,000 people died last week and they're saying that 150 people died. Do your images show how many people could have died in the attack? Yes. I mean, to clarify, the news flash that we released last week said that if the reports are true of hundreds of people or up to 2,000 people being killed, that would mean it was Boko Haram's deadliest attack. I mean, it's still early days. Those numbers haven't been confirmed at all. The satellite images show clearly the destruction of property and there's concrete evidence evidence of that. However, bodies still haven't been collected and there aren't official records that have been released. So it's really hard to say what the numbers are. But witnesses that we have interviewed who were fleeing Baga to get to somewhere safe did say that on the way they saw hundreds of bodies. Some said countless number of bodies. So hopefully that's something in time which can be confirmed and corroborated. But it's still you know, quite alarming, these numbers that are coming through. These attacks are coming before presidential and parliamentary elections next month. Do you think this upsurge in violence has potential to undermine the legitimacy of the vote? Well, I mean, in terms of amnesty, really we're a human rights organization and we'll comment on the human rights situation at hand. Uh You know, we understand that this is a time of elections and that's happening and the government are focusing on that. But the fact still remains, civilians are being killed and that's something that the government do need to focus on, regardless of what time it is. That was Kese Omar, Amnesty International Nigeria campaigner. People of Mozambique came in numbers at the Independence Square in Maputo to witness the swearing-in of their new president, Felipe Nyusi. Nyusi is taking the reins from former president Armando Guebuza. Nyusi, a former defense minister, was Frelimo's presidential candidate during the country's elections in October last year. Spiwengelo reports.
The ceremony was painted red with colors of the ruling Frelimo. Security was very tight to ensure the inauguration goes smooth. I, Philip Nyusi, commit and uphold the Constitution of the Republic of Mozambique and I will serve the people of Mozambique with honor and dignity. All eyes will be on President Nyusi for the next five years. The people of Mozambique have high expectations, improving education and health systems, fighting poverty and fixing transport infrastructure are some of their expectations. When handing over the reins, former President Armando Kepuza said the news must ensure unity amongst people of Mozambique. The will have to take forward the development of the country and ensure the unity of people of Mozambique. I'm going to support all news's plans as president. Opposition party Renamo boycotted the ceremony. Its spokesperson Antonio Muchanga has accused the newly inaugurated president of refusing to work with them. We are saying there are districts and provinces where Renamo have won. Let us put leaders from Renamo on those provinces and districts. An economic analyst in Mozambique, Rashida Souza, says the fighting between the two parties is not good for the country's economy. All the gain that we made, we can look around to see the buildings, these things. If the war starts again, all these things will be stopped again. We will start killing each other. And the one that have resources technology and power to take our minerals, they will be sitting and waiting to see where we are going. If we finish each other, they will come and take back the resource. South African President Jacob Zuma, as well as former President Thabo Mpegi and other heads of state, graced the ceremony, Sipuangelo in Maputo, Mozambique. The United Nations says Ebola remains a public health emergency that is far from over. With close to 8,500 deaths and more than 21,000 infections recorded, the UN's system coordinator on Ebola, Dr. David Nabarro, says a progress in the overall response in West Africa has given cause for optimism, but he refused to speculate as to when the outbreak would be completely eradicated. Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone have just recorded the lowest weekly total of confirmed Ebola cases since August last year. Nabarro has been crisscrossing the region, scaling up the international response, ensuring sufficient beds, testing laboratories, safe burials, and education deemed crucial to stopping the outbreak. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. Dr. David Nabarro has been crisscrossing the region, scaling up the international response, ensuring sufficient beds, testing laboratories, safe burials and education deemed crucial to stopping the outbreak. This has been an enormous disease outbreak, quite unlike anything that I have seen in my professional life before. And it still is serious in any other situation to have 10 or 15 or 20 new cases of Ebola each day in any part of the world would be seen as a serious public health event. But we have to look at it in the context of what was happening, for example, in September last year, 
when we were seeing 10 times as many new cases a day. Mm. And it leads us to believe that we're going in the right direction towards elimination. Latest World Health Organization figures show a death toll nearing the 8,500 mark, with over 21,000 cases reported to date. And with sufficient treatment facilities and teams in place to deal with the disease from detection to, in many cases, burials, the focus is now shifting to the next phase. Then starts the hard part, which is epidemiological detectives, public health people who scan the countryside, working with local communities to identify people who might have the disease and to bring them into uh, surveillance and then treatment as quickly as possible and then to follow their contacts because once you can actually trace the patterns of transmission and be sure that you know where the new cases are coming from then you can say to yourself aha we're getting this outbreak under control smaller Ebola outbreaks were quickly stamped out in Senegal Nigeria and Mali as staunch beliefs and traditions hampered the response in countries where the outbreak was most severe. So the manner of death is hugely important to the well-being of the community in the future. And that's why the style of funeral is given such importance and significance in traditional cultures in this part of West Africa. And the style usually involves careful washing of the body and the mourners actually covering themselves with the fluid that's used to wash the body. If a person dies with Ebola, there's a lot of virus on their body at the time of death. And so if they're being washed, and then the mourners are covering themselves with the fluid from the washing, then there's a huge danger of the virus spreading. He praised the response of the African Union that has some 600 volunteers in the region while lauding South Africa's quick support and solidarity, particularly in Guinea. But Dr. Nabarro would not be drawn on specific timelines for the eradication of Ebola in West Africa. I wish I was a good fortune teller. But I, what I'm saying to you today is that this is a remarkable story of global solidarity of African solidarity, African leadership, leadership from within the countries and the communities. And it will be dealt with, and it will be dealt with as quickly as possible. But not only that, after this outbreak is finished, these countries and the rest of Africa will be much better prepared to deal with future outbreaks. And that's the thing that really matters. His parting shot was that this was the toughest job that had come his way, but professionally the most rewarding, and one that remains far from done. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. World icon Nelson Mandela's ex-wife, Winnie Matigizela Mandela, is approaching the Constitutional Court after the Mtata High Court struck off her application to have a meeting in Unu stopped. The judge said the executors of Madiba's estate were not cited in the application and didn't want to listen to another urgent submission. Kulego Nyembezi reports. Winnie Matigizela Mandela believes the Eastern Cape Judge President Temba Sanguni and Acting Deputy Judge President Zaman Ntlangulela who presided over the matter on Tuesday, have shown interest in the matter. Her lawyer, Mvuzono Jesse, says 
the refusal to hear the resubmitted urgent application was a clear indication that he has interest. Justin Tlangulele struck the matter of the role on the grounds that the executors were not cited in the application to stop the meeting at the Kuno home. She says his actions directly infringed the country's constitution, particularly Section 34, which deals with the right to a fair hearing. Her lawyer, Mvuzonokese, elaborates. The reason why we're approaching the constitutional court in this matter is because the judge in Mtata has uh, refused to have the matter re-enroll on agency, saying that he has already struck it off wrong. And our understanding is that if a matter is struck off the wrong, it is not dismissed. Nokesi says the reason for approaching the constitutional court is because there might be an element of constitutional rights violation. If we are refused now a hearing from this court, it means that directly infringes upon that right. Constitutional law and fundamental rights analysts from Wadley College of Law in Johannesburg, Brenda Wadley, believes that the court was not correct in refusing the certificate of agency. But was the High Court in, in, in Umtata correct in refusing to issue a certificate of urgency? I disagree. I think that she had made out a case for urgency. When she did not cite the trustees of the Nelson Khodisasa Mandela Trust, that is where she made the error, but then they came back and they corrected that error. So in my view, Ujazin Bangulele ought to have entertained the matter on an urgent uh, basis and then perhaps say that Umama does not have the local standi to bring that application. Wattle says they should have considered the Supreme Court of Appeal and not the Constitutional Court. She says the fact that Judge Sangun and Judge Tichang Mosenega among the Nelson Manera trustees still poses a great challenge. Approaching the Constitutional Court is also problematic. She cites the fact that Judge President of the Eastern Cape, uh, Temba Sangoni, is also a trustee of the Nelson Kholisasa Mandela Trust. However, if we take into cognizance the fact that Deputy Chief uh, Justice Udikang Musenek is also a trustee, the argument doesn't hold. So what she ought to have done firstly in this case was to say to Judge Nzangulele, I disagree, I apply for leave to appeal against this decision and we need this matter resolved on an urgent basis. So I doubt that she is going to be granted uh, direct access to the Constitutional Court and even if she is granted direct access, the issue of local standby, which I explained earlier, is going to become important. Meanwhile, traditionalist Dr. Noguzolam Dende of Itamaku Institute believes that the Western law undermines customary law as the family feud is now characterized by an element of gender discrimination. We are told that the Constitution is against any form of gender discrimination. But if you look at the Mandela case deeply, you will find that there is an element of gender discrimination. Why do I say that? If Uma Munobala Winnie Matikizela Mandela had a son, let's say Zenani was a son or Zinzi was a maid, there would be no discussion whatsoever now because Mama Mandela and Tatu Mandela got that side when they were married. Matikizela Mandela says the meeting to be convened at Kuno remains unlawful, illegal and unconstitutional because the matter is still pending before the High Court. I'm Gurule Gunyembezi in Mtata.
United Nations World Tourism Organization says tourism can be used as a tool for poverty eradication, community development and the protection of biodiversity. This comes as the United Nations General Assembly Tourism adopted a resolution titled Promotion of Sustainable Tourism, Including Ecotourism for Poverty Eradication and Environment Protection. The resolution calls upon the UN system to promote sustainable tourism as an instrument that can contribute to achieving the millennium development goals. More from Dr. Dirk Kleiser, who is the Director of Sustainable Development of Tourism at the United Nations World Tourism Organization. The resolution is again a, a milestone for the tourism sector and for sustainable development. It was sponsored by 107 member states, adopted by consensus of the General Assembly of the United Nations, that sustainable tourism is a major force for good is a solution to many problems and especially to alleviate poverty. The direct benefits of tourism, which is one of the largest economic activities at the global level already, we have crossed in 2012 for the very first time 1 billion international arrivals. To translate that into information on the ground, it means that globally one out of 11 jobs is already linked to tourism. It is the biggest voluntary redistribution of wealth, uh, which is happening through these direct benefits of tourism, but also they are indirect benefits. That's why tourism by many, many governments around the world, and especially in Africa, is a priority tool for development, meaning that the focus of, of all the actions the focus of the framework is on tourism and fostering tourism to happen and to be sustainable so that this is also in general then causing development for national economies. We know that this resolution has adopted quite a number of policies that really calls for the promotion of ecotourism and specifically highlighting the impact of income generation as well as um, job creation and education. If you could just reflect a bit on that. The resolution widely, widely is sponsored and is pointing out the, the core elements which the report prepared by this secretariat for the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, was stressing that tourism is a unique opportunity, is already very large, but will grow and prosper even further in the years to come. We will see dimensions of tourism in the year, one, uh, in the year 2030. We estimate that the 1 billion we have currently traveling internationally will grow to 1.8 billion international arrivals. So you see the enormous potential the tourism sector will even have in the future. Very important to link at that stage also uh, another piece of research which was conducted in 2014 by our secretariat focusing on the economic importance of wildlife watching in Africa. Um, for the very first time we were in the in the position to come out with an estimate of how valuable tourism is in those terms. And let me stress, this is the most conservative calculation because tourism, as I mentioned before, has also other impacts on the environment to preserve, on the culture to preserve. We found that the average tour price per day of wildlife watching in Africa is $433 per person and that an additional spending 
per day of $55 is taking place. So you see, in economic terms, an activity happening which has enormous spending power and benefiting in large parts the local population. That is Dr. Dirk Glaser, who is the Director of Sustainable Development of Tourism at the United Nations World Tourism Organization. He was talking to Humuzo Mopulane. It's time for news headlines with Onel. The Nigerian army has killed 42 fighters from the radical Islamist group Boko Haram. 13 crew of a Burundian vessel are feared to have died on a return trip from Tanzania. And the United Nations says Ebola remains a public health emergency that is far from over, with close to 8,500 deaths and more than 21,000 infections recorded. Channel Africa News. The government of Tanzania has banned rich doctors in an attempt to combat a rise in the killing of people with albinism for their body parts. At least 74 people with albinism have reportedly been murdered in the East African country since 2000. Which doctors believe their body parts bring good fortune and wealth? The Tanzania Albinism Society, however, warns that a ban on witchcraft alone does not go far enough, but just serves as a starting point. The society secretary General Ziad Nzembo further explains. It is not the first time for the government to say such things. For the first time, they said so, and they stopped them to continue their work by saying that they are not allowed to do the same work because their work is dealing with the cutting of the parts of people's albinism, parts of the body. But it didn't work. It didn't give any a positive results. So at this time again, the same decision has come out. We don't know if it will be successful or not. We are waiting for the results. Now, Zaida, the government has also launched an education campaign to end the killings, and it has also agreed to form a task force to conduct special operations against the kidnappings, abductions, and murders. So would you agree that this time around, this is a sign of a strong recognition of the need to address albinism killings and a commitment to do so? Again, the really solution is to know who is the dealer, the consumer of the parts of the body, the parts of the body of the people of the albinism. We haven't got them even one unless we catch them and they are punished and they say where they what do they do with those parts of the body? What are they doing with them? That will be the solution. But everything even though they can put a campaign and so forth, we have done so much since 2006. We have been doing so many campaigns, we've done so many things, but things haven't come out to end. We are not sure that things will come to an end unless those dealers have been caught. Now, Ziaida, let's reflect more on the plight of people with albinism in Tanzania. 
uh, this situation is dead and worse because people with albinism live in fear in their country. The children don't go to school now, they are afraid, especially in the villages. And the farmers and other people with albinism in the villages and any other places, they don't go to work freely, they are afraid. But the bad thing, those people, the small ones, the babies, one year, two years, three years, four years, up to five years, they are being taken to the centers to be kept there. They leave their parents. They go there without their parents. They stay there alone with the other people. So this is a very dangerous psychologically for them, and they leave the orphans. So this is a very, very bad. And those centers now, it has got a very high flow of children with albinism, especially those small ones. That is Ziad Nzembo, Secretary General of the Tanzania Albinism Society. On the line from the capital of Dar es Salaam, talking to Jane Matebula. A meeting between SADC health ministers and the private sector has recommended the creation of a regional health trust to tackle malaria, TB and HIV and AIDS. It's the first formal meeting between health authorities and business and is aimed at combating efforts to map out healthcare strategies to fight the diseases. Eastern and Southern Africa have the world's highest HIV burden. It's home to fifth of the world's population and half of the people living with HIV. Shingai Nyoga reports. There's more to this gathering than a sunset cruise and cocktails. SADC's health ministers are for the first time forging relations with the private sector to beat the 2030 deadline to eliminate the triple threat, malaria, TB and HIV AIDS. Last year's AIDS conference in Melbourne, Australia set a benchmark for what is considered eliminating HIV and AIDS. South Africa's health minister Aaron Mutswaledi explains. What you call 1990 meaning we will have eliminated it if 90% of the population have tested and 90% of those who have tested positive are on treatment and 90% of those who are on treatment are virally suppressed. Then we will have said we have reached there. We, are also, we believe South Africa can also be there. UNAIDS believes that SADC has made profound steps in eliminating the disease, but there is a worrying upswing. The director for East and Southern Africa's Sheila Klo. All countries have had a reduction in the AIDS, uh, in new infections. But among the new infections that are coming up is among young people, especially young women. Young women are up to six times more likely to be infected with HIV than their male counterparts. And I'm talking people who are like under, under 18. The vaccine against HIV for young girls is schooling and education. But UNAIDS says that there's also an overwhelming amount of money needed to fight the three diseases. In fact, about $8 billion for Eastern and Southern Africa. We need that kind of money and for a sustained response. Discovery Health is attending the conference, and it says it's not just providing financial support, but passing on skills and knowledge. It's here to promote what it calls the fourth bottom-line concept of integrated reporting. Chief Financial Officer Brett Trump. Integrated reporting is something very exciting. So currently what happens when you report in in corporate society and in your financial statements, you've got something that reports on financial, environmental and social. But what we found um, at Discovery is that uh, the people, the health of the people was not being reported on.
Anglo-America, South Africa's largest private sector employer, has been pushing to strengthen health care outside its immediate environment. Anglo-American Chief Medical Officer Brian Brink. Uh, if their community is unhealthy, businesses cannot be successful. So it's, it's really important for business not only to have healthy workforces, but also healthy communities. Those are the customers. SADC health ministers are expected to adopt a resolution promoting the fourth bottom line reporting among the 15 member states. It's also expected to create a multi-sectoral task force to spearhead a proposed regional health trust. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. The South African Mining Minister Ngwagora Matlodi is in London meeting with mining officials and British government ministers after a turbulent year for the industry. After a year which saw strikes in South Africa, there are concerns wage negotiations in the gold and coal mining sectors could lead to further instability in 2015. Dan Whitehead spoke to the minister and filed the following report for us. Minister Noako Ramakodi arrived in London to hold a number of meetings with industry officials and government ministers. I asked him firstly what his hopes were for the mining sector in South Africa after a year which saw a crippling five-month wage strike. We are obliged to stabilise the industry, make sure that the peace that we have attained uh, in the middle of last year is further sustained and... uh, we are doing this through a range of initiatives under the special presidential projects to stabilize the mining uh, communities. The minister has a huge task to maintain the reputation of the mining sector, which accounts for around 7% of the country's GDP. With global growth concerns mounting for 2015, the minister told me he is not concerned about any slowdown in demand from China. As better stand, the UK remains our biggest uh, market. Uh, there have been very little debt on it for historic reasons. Um, and we welcome new players in our sphere, uh, America and China. Um, and those economies feed off each other, by the way. Allegations of tax avoidance in mining continue to be a problem for the government. The minister insists revenue services are cracking down on the issue. Policies are there in place. I mean, you have had a situation where our SAS, South African Revenue Services, have collected money from mines who are using what is called the, uh, the schemes that you are referring to. And they've paid some billions back uh, in the past, so we'll continue to do it. At the end of March, the mining charter is up for renewal and the minister will reveal whether the target for black management has been achieved. The charter had required that 26% of the mining sector be in black hands by December last year. Dan Whitehead, London. This message is meant for a listener in South Africa. Hi, I'm Gosazana Zamini Zuma, the chairperson of the African Union Commission. Ebola in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone is causing untold suffering and loss of life. Despite these odds, we are inspired by the courage of the people, the efforts of the governments and the heroism of health workers and volunteers. It gives us hope and fills us with determination that we can stop Ebola. 
You can avoid Ebola, you can recover from Ebola, and you can contribute to the fight against Ebola. The African Union and member state countries have deployed health workers and volunteers to stop Ebola, but more is needed. You and I can make a difference. SMS Stop Ebola to the number 40797 and donate at least $1 in your local currency to stop Ebola. You can also donate through the website www.africaagainstebola.org. With your donation, we can send a thousand or more health workers to the affected countries. United, we can stop Ebola. Thank you. It's time for your economic news with Tabiso.
It's still not clear how the South African government will help a power utility Eskom to keep the lights on in the near future. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa visited the power utilities office in Johannesburg yesterday. Eskom Chief Executive Officer Tidiso Matona also held a media briefing about the current state of the power system, saying extensive maintenance work was needed to secure electricity supply. He says that this means a regular load shedding is all but inevitable for at least the next three months. We've accumulated such extent of maintenance backlog that we have capacity out because of the breakdowns in our plants. That means that because we don't have that sufficient capacity, we can't meet demand. And when we can't meet demand, it means that we have to look here. It's as simple as that. Now, To do the maintenance, we need a buffer, we need a reserve, so that when we take plant out for maintenance, we can still be able to supply the power. We don't have that reserve. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers has defied a labor court order that declares that the strike at Northern Platinum's Zondarenda mine in Mpopo province unprotected. The union says its members will stay away from work until the mine's CEO, Paul Dunn, is sacked. Mine management says about 2,000 workers are still on strike. It has warned that they must return to their posts by today or face disciplinary action. But the union says 5,200 workers have signed a petition to have done fired due to alleged unfair dismissals. A few workers affiliated to rival union AMCU reported for work yesterday. Noom Deputy General Secretary Chair, Kolile Nozozo. Unfortunately, we are not going to work until the management has resolved the issues. Disciplinary action doesn't threaten us. If the company doesn't change the way they treat our workers, it won't change in our decision to embark on this strike. Uh, we'd like to, to, to meet with the management and negotiate and clarify the issues with us. Instead of just saying we must go to work, they are going to, to meet with us after the workers have gone to work. The Uganda Shippers Council has advised importers and exporters of goods to start taking local freight insurance covers to minimize the costs they incur when their goods are lost while in transit. The chair of the council, Charles Sakariba, says many importers and exporters are blindly paying numerous freight insurance charges because they are not engaging clearing and forwarding agents for technical advice of what to pay for. As a result, he said prices of imported goods become exorbitantly high. Kenya plans to boost its global coffee sales and revive the coffee sector through branding and direct marketing. Agriculture Cabinet Secretary Felix Koskiai says that the direct coffee sales will be introduced as a measure to liberalize the marketing system of the product. Other measures, including the restructuring of key coffee institutions, including the Coffee Research Foundation and Coffee Board of Kenya, to improve efficiency in the coffee sector. Ethiopia is the only other country in the region that is selling branded coffee. The US dollar, 11.55 South African Rand, 9.59 Botswana Pula, 6.52 in Zambia, 0.65 British Pound, 0.84 across the Eurozone, Gold, $1.258, Platinum, $1.255 an ounce, Brand Crude, $4.8.50 a barrel. My name is Tabi Lohoku on the economic update, and later on we'll be having Socially Africa.
Musibudi Makura is in studio with your sports news. Morning sports fans and starting off with football news. All players entering Equatorial Guinea for the Africa Cup of Nations tournament will be tested for Ebola as well as all visitors to the country. Julia Nakama Abeso Ovoma, the administrative attache of the country's embassy in London, says everyone entering Equatorial Guinea will go through a short medical check upon arrival as a precautionary measure. According to the Confederation of African Football, KVAT was the first team to arrive on Tuesday. And once checked, Congo, Burkina Faso, Tunisia and the Republic, or rather the Democratic Republic of Congo and Ghana have also arrived in Equatorial Guinea. Equatorial Guinea has no reported cases of Ebola. The small oil-rich nation in Central Africa took over as hosts of the tournament at short notice from Morocco, which didn't want to stage the championship because of fears over the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and fans traveling from that region. The 16-team tournament opens this Saturday and will be played in four cities including the capital city Malabo and the largest city Bata. The final schedule to take place on the 8th of February in Bata. Meanwhile, Congo Brazzaville have arrived in Equatorial Guinea for their opening match against the host country, only to find that there wasn't enough rooms for the team at the hotel. Coach Claude Leroy was livid. They book only 30 place for national team with 23 players, with one chief of delegation, for example, at minimum four coaches, minimum four people in the medical staff, two or three caretakers of the material, uh, one osteopath, one director of communication. That means there are 35 on the technical staff and the players, but uh, they have only 30, 30 places available. Still on football news, Algeria have suffered another injury blow ahead of the Africa Cup of Nations final with goalkeeper Mohamed Lamine Zimomoche ruled out after getting hurt in training. The keeper became the third player named in the original 23-man squad selected last month to be forced to withdraw from the tournament in Equatorial Guinea, which starts this Saturday. Zimomoche suffered an injury to his shin says the Algerian Football Federation, C.S. Constantine's Cedric Sa Mohamed, who ha- was in the squad at last year's World Cup finals in Brazil, has been called up as his replacement ahead of Algeria's Group C opener against South Africa in Mongomo on Friday, or rather next week Monday. And finally, in cycling news, the world's most famous cycle Tour race Tour de France will have an African team competing for the first time this year. MTN Kubega from South Africa has been awarded a wild card race by the organizers. Team principal Ryder Doug Ryder is hoping this will allow them to build on the endurance. You know, African sport has always been pretty good, and especially endurance running. And our theory was always if we can get more kids on bicycles in Africa, can you imagine how we could transform cycling, you know, and uh, because of the endurance running talent that has just been so successful over the last 30 years from Africa, and uh, and that was kind of the basis and the dream of this team and, and, and our partnership with the Quebec charity, and for us to now go to the Tour de France as the first ever African registered team.
Well, those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping out of stories, Amnesty International releases satellite images of the towns of Abaga and Doron Baga showing the devastation caused by Boko Haram. A meeting between SADC health ministers and the private sector recommends the creation of a regional health trust to tackle malaria, TB and HIV and AIDS. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Lebu Munamokulu, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. You can send us your comments to info at channelafrica.org, info at channelafrica.org, or to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mashlatini with Melodiala. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.